How do you end a weekend devoted to studying and talking about sanctification and pursuing that in yourself and seeking to grow in your ministry to others to that end? How do you end a day dedicated to that topic and a weekend dedicated to that topic? Here's a thought you should pray. Even right now, in your seats, you should pray. This evening, when we go home, we should pray. Tomorrow, when we wake up, we should pray. Throughout the day, we must pray. For we recognize what's in us. And we recognize our profound need for God's Spirit to work in our minds and our hearts and our wills. Because we believe... The Word of God, when Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved brother, uh, uh, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then here's the part I want to tease out. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You should pray. And we should study a prayer of sanctification this evening to that end. But before we go forward any further, let's let's pray together. Let's go to God in prayer, asking Him to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, this evening as we Seek your favor, seek your glory, seek your reputation to be increased and your, your fame to go forth even from our small little lives and from the progress of sanctification in them. We pray that you would help us. You would help us to love you more so that we love sin less. And we pray that you would make your vision of us our vision of us. We pray that you would make your will for us our will for us. We pray that you would do this. That you would be honored in us. That we would be increasing in holiness. That we would be increasing in humbleness. And then as a result, our lives would be marked with a profound happiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On Thursday nights in youth group, we were studying last fall uh, selected psalms, and the goal there was to, to try to figure out how the Bible instructs us to pray. And I, I've really grown to love uh, tackling the subject of prayer through the Bible with students. They, they are thrilled by how the Bible directs us to pray. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that we live in a society where prayer is kind of a little bit weak and cheap, but to actually see the, the, the depths you can go and the heights you can go in prayer through Scripture is amazing, compelling, astounding. And students love this. They really love to learn what real prayer looks like. 
And, and the book of Psalms is just a treasure to every saint who wants to grow in their prayer life. We need to learn to think and to feel and to deal with our life situations and experiences. And the book of Psalms helps us to do this because not only uh, does the book of Psalms approach these topics with a theologically inspired lens, perfect precision theologically, but the book of Psalms is also experientially honest. It is enormously helpful for us in our prayer life to study the book of Psalms and how they teach us to pray. Pray. Well, we were going through this topic, we encountered, at least I encountered, an unexpected surprise. It wasn't too unexpected. I kind of picked the psalm, but it was unexpected how much of a prayer this psalm was. And the psalm was 139, Psalm 139. It was an unexpected prayer for sanctification. It's a well-known psalm. It's a rightly beloved psalm as well. But it's probably not a well-known psalm for its prayer that comes at the very end. Ultimately, it is a prayer psalm for sanctification. We were talking earlier about you know, popular verses that people post on their refrigerator. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, You've never seen these words posted on a refrigerator or on a quilt somewhere. Look at Psalm 139, the very end, where the whole psalm is going. 139, and we're going to read 19 all the way through 24, just to get a a feel for the prayer of this psalm. Verse 19 of 139 says this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies." Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When you think of Psalm 139, you probably don't think of those verses as much, but this is the whole thrust of the psalm. This is where the psalm is leading to this particular prayer, particularly those last two verses. Now, if, if you want to read the rest of the psalm and skip this part, it's kind of like preparing a feast and skipping eating it. it. It's like driving all the way to the Rockies and then just turning around and coming back before you see them. We, we must get a feel for the whole psalm because it's leading us to this very prayer, this prayer for sanctification. It is a glorious meditation on the presence, the knowledge, the power, and the will of God. And this all is meant to lead you to pray for sanctification in your life. So the prayer here is basic. It's a basic prayer. It's basically this, Lord, help me to love you 
most so that I love sin less. Lord, make your vision of me my vision of me. Lord, make your will for me my will for me this evening. Let's, let's kind of jump right into it. We'll start at the beginning, and we'll kind of approach it this way. These are four meditations on God that prompt you to a prayer of sanctification. So we're going we're to look at four meditations on God, and the final one prompts you to a prayer of sanctification or purification, holiness in your life. What is the first meditation that leads you to prayer? Number one, you say this to God, your knowledge of me is perfect. Your knowledge of me is perfect. Verse one, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, And when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now notice, notice there in those few verses how, how you're just continually saying your knowledge of me is perfect. First that, first, that first verse there, you have searched me. Notice the perfect tense of that Verb, searched me, E-D, it ends with an E. This is, this is an emphasis on the action as being completed. It's, it's, it's a view of the action from afar. This is full, this is perfect knowledge, complete knowledge that we have here. This isn't, this isn't a present request to search me, like what we see in verse 23. This, this, this has the perspective of, hey, the search is over. The knowledge of me is complete and thorough. You have searched me. It's the same word that's used to speak of a spy who has searched out an entire city. All the weaknesses are known. All the access points are known. You have searched me. It's the same word that's used often for a mountain that has been thoroughly excavated for precious metals and stones. You have cleared me out. You know all of my ways, all of my tunnels. You know everything that's in me. You say to God, God, I am a well-known entity to you. I have no hidden places, no hidden parts. You have searched me completely. You've discovered all of me. I have no surprises for you. You have searched me, and you know me, and you have known me, he says. This is functioning grammatically kind of as the result of that searching. 
You have searched me, and as a result, you know me. The knowledge spoken of here isn't just intellectual understanding or data. This is practical knowledge. This is skill. Think about this. God is wise towards you. God possesses a skill in understanding you. You can say it this way. God is an expert on me. In the academic world, there are these men, crazy men, who pursue this thing called a PhD. (laughs) I'm not one of these crazy men, so I can make fun of them. But to get a PhD, you have to be the total expert on a subject. You have to read more widely and deeply on this specific subject than anyone else. You have to be the expert on it. God is an expert on you. He knows you thoroughly, completely, better than anyone else in the entire world. As a matter of fact, notice the you. You have searched me and known me. The, the you there is emphatic. It, it stands alone in the Hebrew, and that places an emphasis on it. It says this, you, God, and you, God, and no other. You know me completely, thoroughly. You know me better than anyone. And you know me even better than I know myself. David, the writer of this psalm, then proceeds to make this point of God's perfect knowledge with a few illustrations that are very helpful to us. First off, David says, you see my whole day. Verse 2, you see when I sit, and you see when I rise up. This is a, a word play called a merism. It refers to two extreme ends of a thing to explain everything about that thing. And we use this kind of speech in in, in in our vernacular as well, you say, I have searched. I have searched thoroughly this entire countryside. I have searched from coast to coast. Or you might say, I know the subject completely. I have read the book from cover to cover. That means you know all of it. This is what David is saying. When I sit and when I rise, you know my whole day. These are two actions, sitting and rising, that are basic descriptions of your whole day. You think you're hot? You think you're cool? Your day consists of nothing more than sitting and rising. Sitting and rising all day long. God knows every part of you, every part of your day. He knows your activity and he knows your idleness. He knows everything. Every part of you is plain to God. That part that you think is so impressive is very plain to God. And that part that you think is so shameful is very plain to God. He sees my whole day. David, secondly, also says, you know my thoughts and you know my motives. Second half of verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. God understands your thoughts. 
And this isn't just your thinking. He understands the thinking behind your thinking. He understands your intentions, your will, your purposes, your wants, and he understands these things, what does he say? From a distance. And it says in, in four verse, uh, first half of verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. Once again, God knows your thoughts and your motives better than you even know your thoughts or your motives. And the question that constantly needs to be asked of us, who do you believe more? Your thoughts of you or God's thoughts of you? What do you believe more? Your, your feelings about you or Galatians 5.17 about you? Now Galatians 5.17 says this, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. Do you believe that? Me, on my own, by myself, without the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, me, all on my own, I am set against God? I am opposed to him. Notice it's not the world, it's not Satan, it's you. Do you believe that about yourself? God knows your thoughts and your motives. And of course this leads David to kind of a conclusion, exclamation. He basically says, you have caught me. You've caught me. Verse 5, you hem me in, behind and before Hem, this is a word that pictures an army that is encircling a city. Nothing can escape that army. And verse 5 again, your hand is upon me. You lay your hand upon me. This is a word, hand, that really refers to the palm. And so really what David might be picturing here is a, a bug that is trapped on a tabletop. Your hand is upon me. Now, what's the effect? What's the effect of just even beginning to understand God's knowledge of you? What does that do to you? How do you, how do you respond to that? Is it comfort? Is it security? Is it peace? Is it joy? Is it happiness? No. It's a feeling of being cramped, confined, claustrophobic. You know me too well. Notice how he says, how he responds to this knowledge. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The word wonderful there doesn't, doesn't mean delightful, good, enjoyable. It's a worship word. It's an amazement word. It's a fear word. You are beyond me. You are surpassingly above me. This is mind-blowing to me. It is too high, too wonderful. I cannot climb away from it. I cannot escape from it. I cannot get on top of you and understand what you see of me. You are too high, too wonderful for me. Now, what's the sanctifying conclusion that such knowledge of God produces in you? What is the prayer from such theological meditation? 
It's this. It's basically, it's, I, I cannot hide from you. Matter of fact, the way I once lived, I can live no longer because of how you know me. I cannot live in the reality of the fool from Psalm 14 who says, there is no God. I cannot live that way. I cannot live one moment of my day as though you do not know it completely, even my motives. I I cannot say, this part of me is safe. I'm not hidden from your evaluation from your skillful knowledge there are no safe spaces before you O god there are no areas of my life where i get a free pass not even for the first three seconds i have no safety from you your knowledge is perfect of me this leads to the next meditation before us Your presence beside me is pervasive. Your presence beside me is pervasive. Now, follow this. After understanding the perfect knowledge of God, what is the natural response in your heart and mind? It's this. I need to escape. I must get as far away from him as possible. I must hide. If this is his knowledge, I must get away. Maybe if I can go to the ends of the earth. Maybe if I can go to the depths of space. Maybe if I can tunnel into the planet's core, I can hide from this God. And this is where we need to define terms. Pervasive is a word that means widespread throughout. What I'm getting at is a theological term called omnipresence. God is present everywhere. Now, this doesn't just mean that God is really, really big. It doesn't mean that he should be conceived of as in pieces everywhere. Poor Kern County, you've got his armpit. It doesn't mean that God is spread out thinly everywhere, and therefore nowhere completely. When we say God is omnipresent, it is much more terrifying than that. It means we believe that God is everywhere, completely in His fullness. He is everywhere fully to bless or to curse. He cannot be limited anywhere, and He is present fully everywhere. Essentially, you cannot escape God. His presence is pervasive. Now, David gives us more illustrations of this. Verse 7, all the way down through verse 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Notice David makes a few more illustrations. He says, you cannot be escaped by height or by depth. That's what he's talking about in verse 8. Heaven or Sheol, there's another merism referring to everything in between. Doesn't matter how high I go or how deep I go, I cannot escape you. Now, Sheol is not necessarily referring to hell. It's a Hebrew word that can refer to the depths. It can refer to death, or it can refer to just very deep. So essentially, even if I tunnel to the center of the earth, even if I'm buried by wave upon wave of ocean water, even if if I'm in a parking garage... In Kiev, I cannot escape from your presence. It is pervasive. And once again, we have an emphatic you. As if you go to such heights and you go to such depths and you discover at the end, behold, you again. Secondly, David also says, you cannot escape God by light speed or snail's pace. That's right. Star Wars is in the Bible. But actually, it's because I'm a youth pastor and we need to do this, right? But notice what he says. This is ancient Star Wars language. If I take the wings of the morning, that's really fast. Because that is the speed of light. When I arrive, behold, you are there waiting for me. It's like that Star Wars experience, right? You're in light speed to escape the Empire. When you get out of light speed, there he is, (laughs) waiting for you in his Star Destroyer. (laughs) He knows my every intention, every move, regardless of how sudden or quick I move. Everywhere I go, he's already there waiting for me because his presence is pervasive. And don't think because he is everywhere that he'll pass you by either. If you go at a snail's pace, his presence is everywhere in its fullness. Now here, right here is an application that maybe is obvious. But this pervasive presence is a terror to those who have a sin problem. God is everywhere with perfect knowledge. But it's here, verse 10, where this psalm begins to take a shift of gear. It goes from a tone of fright, from claustrophobia, from a feeling of being cramped or confined, to an intense, enduring comfort, and even a burning inner desire for sanctification. David gets to verse 10 to discover, the God I would fear 
And the God I would flee is the God who is everywhere and cares for me. Even there, even there, your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If we were to repurpose that famous parable by Jesus of the prodigal son, it would go like this. The son, the younger son, who hates his father and wants to do whatever he can to simply get away from his father. Takes his inheritance and goes into a far country only to discover that his father is there waiting for him and ready to carry him home. David says, I cannot escape you by height or depth or light speed or snail's pace. And finally he says, I cannot escape your steadfast love and care. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. No darkness or terror can separate you. No place can threaten His knowledge and care for you. We are reminded of Romans 8, 38-39. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the sanctifi sanctifying conclusion of God's presence with you? What, what kind of prayer is produced by such theological meditations? Well, simple. I cannot escape you. And that's great. The places I once went and felt comfort and joy, I can feel comfort in the same way and joy in sin no longer. Sin cannot be pleasant anymore. You are always there. On the flip side, there is no position that I'm in in life anymore where I cannot have joy, either in life or in death. Joy is always with me because you, in your fullness, are always with me fully. As Psalm 23 says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in sin and in the confession and repentance of sin, God is already there. Correcting, yes, but also carrying you home. Your presence beside me is pervasive number three 
Third, meditation on God. Your will for me is precious. Now, the psalmist moves to the deepest, darkest, most secret place that the ancient mind could conceive of. The womb. And he says, all of this is building, he says, God's knowledge, God's presence, God's skill, God's power, God Himself in all of His fullness is even there. In the most secret place. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My, my frame was not hidden from you when it was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. I want to say two simple things about this section. Simple assertions. Number one, you have been made skillfully. Verse 13, you knit me together. This is something that is picturing the working of a tapestry, a detailed masterpiece. The human creation is the the high point of God's creation. The human is God's masterpiece. Matter of fact, he says this, verse 14, in conclusion, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Once again, that worship word that we see, too high, beyond, above me, it makes me get low in worship because of the glory of your creation, of humans. But this is not a worship of humans because there's a second thing I want to point out. You have made me also purposely. Verse 16, in your book were written all of my days. All of the days of your life were completely clear to God from the moment of conception. You were a complete personhood. The fullness of your days was fully known to God, already known to God. Your days were fully planned by God and and set in His purposes. And what were the purposes for you? In creation, how do you fit into God's big picture storyline? You were created purposely, skillfully for His own glory. Verse 17 shows us this purpose, right? Not that I am precious or wonderful, but that I am created with God's purpose, and glory in mind. That gets me low in worship and wonder. And what's the sanctifying conclusion of God's will and purpose in your life? How do such meditations like this lead you to prayer? I think it's important to have two. 
Number one, you, you, we must say to ourselves, I can no longer think of myself cheaply. No human life can be counted as a mistake or worthless or useless in God's design or purpose. No human should be given up on in prayer. I cannot think of myself as cheaply. But on the other hand, I can no longer think of myself arrogantly. There is no true joy found for me in a life apart from God's purpose or design. I find maximum joy, maximum happiness in God's plan. There is no identity that I can form against the knowledge of God that brings me lasting peace, lasting happiness. There is nothing. I must not think of myself cheaply, but I also must not think of myself arrogantly. And verse 17 and 18 continues, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them They are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Once again, notice the language there, how precious, how weighty, how full. God has given weighty significance to His purposes in you to bring Himself glory. You were created for worship, And a believer is doubly so, because not only are you revealing God's glory in creation, you are also revealing God's glory in the precious price of Christ for you. And notice how he says this, how precious to me, or perhaps better, how precious towards me. Your thoughts To me, towards me, are precious. To my advantage. How precious to me is your will for me, O God. Your will for me is precious. Let's move to our fourth meditation on God that prompts a prayer of sanctification. Your knowledge of me is perfect. Your presence beside me is pervasive. Your will for me is precious. And lastly, your relationship with me is purifying. We come now to that prayer that we were talking about at the beginning. This psalm is a prayer for sanctification in your heart and life. Sanctification from what? From the world, but particularly from the love of the world. Verse 19 again. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is where it gets very interesting because this is a prayer in the Bible. This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. 
comes from the word imprecator. It's to call down, to evoke, to pray down an evil or a curse upon someone. These prayers fill the Bible, and they are not incoherent with the rest of the Bible either. A few things you should know about imprecatory prayers. First off, imprecations are not hidden. These kinds of prayers are not hidden in the Bible. They're not the skeletons in the Bible's closets. Matter of fact, 17 psalms contain imprecation. And even more surprising, imprecations are for the holy. These are not sinful prayers that kind of have snuck in to the Bible. Uh, These are the songs of heaven. Revelation 6.10, the martyrs are praying to God, how long will you delay justice? When are you going to destroy those who have killed us? And even Jesus often quoted and applied these psalms to himself. Psalm 69 and 109 were some of his favorites, and they were also some of the most intense psalms in our Bibles. Imprecations are not hidden, they are for the holy, they are also not alone. It is rare that you find a prayer of imprecation in the Bible that is just that. It's it's usually attached to a psalm that is leading somewhere, that is coming from something. It's, It's a part of a psalm. A matter of fact, of the 370 verses in imprecatory psalms, actually only 65 verses actually contain Imprecation. So it's, these are parts of the psalms that they contain. Just like our psalm, most of the psalm is leading to this prayer. Another thought about imprecations. Imprecations are never emotionless. Psalms are meant to, to fill out the full human and emotional experience of God's people. We were not made to be robots. We were not made to be stoics. We were made to feel deeply about God and His ways. Faith is not aloof from feeling or emotions. Sometimes faithfulness means we need to express emotions. True faith is not without emotions about God's reputation in the world. True faith is impassioned for God's honor and glory. And true faith must respond when God's name is drug through the dirt. They're never emotionless. Also, imprecations are not personal. Ultimately, they are expressions of the faithful and how they feel when God's name is reviled. They're they're prayers of, God, do you see? Do something. This in particular is what's going on in our psalm. This prayer that David prays is a result of meditation on God. It's, It's an urgency to express loyalty to God. Lord, I love you most. Do not count me with these evildoers. It's saying, my relationship with you, God, is most important. And I want it to color all of my relationships and what I love. This is 
not necessarily a prayer of love for the lost, but it's much more a prayer of loyalty to God in a sinful world. This is a prayer that wants to get close to God and distance itself from the world. Because we cannot be friends of God and friends with the world in the same way. We know this throughout the Bible. James 4.4 4 says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world must make himself an enemy of God. Proverbs 8.13 is very clear. The fear of Yahweh is the hatred of of evil pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech i hate when you fear god as this psalm directs you to it results in proper hatred of evil and a desire to separate it's saying lord do not count me with the wicked lord count me as your own i'm not with them i am with you This is a prayer of humiliation, self-examination, and purification. Look, look at where it heads. Look, at the people who know their God have a, des- a burning desire to get close and stay close to Him and a burning desire for sanctification in their life. Quite simply, the knowledge of God changes everything about you in your life. Notice where this prayer of purification leads. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me. Notice verse 23. The words are the same, but in a different sense. This is not a statement of fact, but now the psalmist moves to a request, to a pleading even with God. God, search me, know me, reveal what you know to me. Reveal any grievous way in me. Reveal my pride to me. Reveal and root out any love of the world to pride, arrogance, any way of evil, any perverted form of speech in me. Root it out. Reveal me to me, O Lord. Make Your vision of me my vision of me. Now I said this to the students. And I'll say it to you as well. I dare you to pray this prayer to God. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. Reveal me to me. Show me me. Lord, keep me away from what angers you. Lord, how can I love? How can I cozy up to what you hate? Lord, put this 
as the entertainment filter on my life. But this is not just a prayer for rebuke. Notice it's also a prayer for leading. Verse 24, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way of glory. Lead me in the way and the life that would glorify you. Once again, the basic prayer here is, Lord, help me to love you the most so that I would love sin less and less. Lord, make your vision of me my vision of me. Make your will for me my will for me. And Psalm said, how distant you are from my sight Well, I am so present in your sight. Lord, show me what you know. Lord, turn on the heat-seeking missiles in my heart and mind. Expose what is weak in me. And make me more holy, more humble and by your grace, more happy in your presence and knowledge. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we are in one sense troubled by you, by your knowledge, by your presence, but we are comforted by your love and by the merciful, gracious gift of Jesus Christ for us. If you know all of our ways and all of our motives, then that is the price that Christ paid. We pray that we would be humble. We pray that you would make us more holy even tonight. And we pray that you would make us, as a result, more happy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.